As autumn blows in, it's time for projects to come to fruition. It's now much talked about ambitions plotted over glasses of summer rosé start to take shape. There's a crispness to the morning air and a spirit of promise to these autumn days. If we're honest, this is the time we should be wishing each other Happy New Year. This episode is our new pencil case in the calendar. This month on Confect Corner, we meet a plucky wine entrepreneur in Austria. We go on an adventure to the Portuguese archipelago of the Azores to find out how this volcanic outcrop is doing things differently. And we talk about unleashing creativity and unbottling writer's block with the musician Leia Sen. This show is a bracing dip in a Berlin lake and a reviving call to action as you limber up to cooler days. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. Sometimes in Paris, I hear things, and I feel like it's people trying to sound a certain way, trying to be in a certain style, while in London, I find so many people that are just in their own lane, and they sound like no one else, and it's so unique. Everything in curation and putting things together the way that we do is a bit of a gamble. Of course, we hope that most of the time it ends well. I love cold waters. For me, it's like a triple espresso, but much, much better. You feel so incredibly awake. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove in London, and I'm joined here in the studio by Gillian DeBias. And on the line from our Zurich office is Confect style director, Marcella Palik. Hello to you both. Hello from Zurich. Hi, I'm Marcella. wearing gloves already. <laughs> Does it feel very autumnal in Zurich? Yes, yes. You need gloves for the bike. Already? Oh my yes. gosh. Or at least me. <laughs> it happened in London just like two days ago. A sort of wind whisked in with autumn and suddenly everyone's outfits changed. You can see the scarves coming out. It's Boots. a lovely feel though. I just came back from Canada where it was a fabulous Indian summer. Very, very hot, which I adored. But I don't know. I'm a big uh, fan of autumn, so I quite like flying in to feel that the freshness in the air. We haven't been really jaded yet by any real cold, so I feel so excited about jumpers and all these things. Ask me in six months and I'll be like, <laughs> when will this end? <laughs> but um, we always like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. So Marcella, what do you have for us this month? Do you know Schanzengraben? No. No? <laughs> Should I? <laughs> so, Schanzengraben is a moat between the lake of Zurich and the city centre. It's one of the last remains of the Baroque fortifications of Zurich. And uh, you can look down to the turquoise and green waters. It looks like a lagoon by walking by or cycling by. But you can also rent a kayak at Necklan Unger. A young, very good-looking man from the small rental called Urban Kayak Zurich. It's absolutely amazing to paddle quietly through the city centre and getting a completely different perspective of the town. The best weekend plan before heading to the Fashion Weeks in Milan and Paris. And uh, if the weather allows, Urban Kayak is open until end of October. So, Sophie, next time when you're here? Absolutely. I'd like to know whether you are really taken by the kayaks or is it this purveyor of kayaks. Is that very I love kayaking. No, I discovered it there and uh, it's like one minute from Paradeplatz, the heart of Zurich with all its banks. So it's really quite special to paddle through the city and you see up to the bridge bankers walking by and you're paddling under them. It's absolutely fabulous. It's amazing to hear that the water is turquoise and transparent in the middle of a city and that's yeah, something is. I love so much in Zurich. The purity <laughs> of the water, so swimmable. Sophie, how about you? So it's London Design Week and last night I went to this amazing live glass-blowing demonstration by a Canadian artist called Omer Arbel, which was in the um, courtyard garden of the V&A. And it was really amazing just to see this incredible act of this hot molten glass happening there, but in the context of this amazing place, which is obviously home to so much craft, but so much glass. So I always go and look at the Murano glass and there's beautiful cobalt blue Egyptian glass in the collection at the V&A, which is from 1400 BC. So you just see this ancient, ancient craft that's three and a half thousand years old and then see it in the modern context I found it really 
refreshing and thought-provoking. And I've done some films watching the um, glass blowers in Murano, and I don't think I could ever tire of that magic of melting sand in a furnace and the red glow and the masters. It's really like choreography. They're so brilliant at their craft and watching what delicate pieces they can make from these raw furnaces. I just am completely mesmerised by it. So I envy you last night. I would have loved to come along with you. And I've also had a party very Ooh. recently, um, which I laboured over quite a bit, but I'm still feeling very emotionally <laughs> buoyed by it. Before I was preoccupied with this flower arranging and I was down in the market finding dahlias and Chinese lanterns and beautiful candlesticks but then when it happened I was reminded how parties are just this is alchemy and there's this joy and spontaneity you can't plan and it was very wonderful in the sense that it all went to plan but I should also say that the very talented Paige Reynolds who's <laughs> who's our producer sang a song our listeners won't know that she is the most amazing musician but it was so personal to have people singing and a little bit of dancing so you've got me worried I think you might be giving up your day job as editor of Confect and being a party planner now I can see the sparkle in your eyes and I'm worried Sophie <laughs> I am still feeling a lovely sense of energy and it's you know despite possibly having a little bit of a hangover I still feel amazing but there is absolutely no chance that might happen. <laughs> it's a one-off. Gillian, tell me, what have you been thinking about this month? It's really something I discovered when I was in Mallorca. It's a very, very special artist's studio called Potter's House. And it's owned by Italian landscape gardener who works out of London, Luciano Jubile. He spent a lot of time in Mallorca, spent some time with this incredible Marocan potter, Maria Antonio Cario, who does these pure, pure, simple ceramics. She passed away and through hooker by crock, through a touch of fate, he managed to buy her property. And it's in a little village, not very touristy, in the north east side of the island. And he's kept it as much as possible as it was. Her studio with all her handwritten labels for all her materials, her brushes, perfectly done. Because he's a landscape garden, he's created this natural garden, which is an ode to artists and to materiality. And what he is doing with her house is um, making it a residency. So every year he will pick a different artist to create a conversation so that they can get inspired by her work, by the the garden by the place and other artists. When I was there, there was a wonderful pottery exhibition. His next artist in residence is a composer because he's inspired by music, by art, and he was interested to see what this Polish composer will create in this space. And what I love about this is Mallorca is great in the summer, it's holiday, it's hot, but I think Mallorca off season is extraordinary. So anyone who goes there, I think this is definitely a pilgrimage worth going to by appointment only. So one would have to check the website and they can appointment but really a very special find. It looks incredible and I can't wait to hear the pot and garden inspired music <laughs> but it just shows you that everything you know these artistic disciplines are all connected and he can see that. It looks like the most beguiling and wonderful retreat. If only you could stay there as a normal non- artist but at least you can have a peek <laughs> and I think I love that a landscape gardener really loves opening up this gesture and the cross-pollination of talent and that's what really is the special alchemy there I think Something happens the moment you step foot on an island no matter how big or small it's a mentality shift that has to do with feeling detached independent and loose from whatever lies back on shore Indeed, the isolation of an island can be attractive and offer an intriguing, different way of life. Just take the Azores, for example, the Portuguese archipelago made up of nine islands smack in the middle of the Atlantic. Here, the world just feels like it's somewhere else, which can have an expansive effect on the way we think about things. Confect's Chiara Romella visited the islands of Pico and São Jorge to discover how life on this volcanic outcrop informs its people's craft, food and mentality. After hours spent flying over nothing but a bluish blur of the Atlantic, when you finally catch sight of the verdant Azores, it's impossible not to feel a sense of relief. 
These islands in the middle of the ocean, between America and Europe, feel like a place that many sailors would have been grateful for during their long voyages. Just before landing, it's easy enough to ask yourself, why would anybody choose to live in such an isolated place? But all you need to do is get off at Pico Airport to understand. The wild, rocky landscape gives this place a primordial feel. Things move at an instinctual pace that's dictated by nature, all of which combines to give residents a strange sense of freedom. This lifestyle has attracted plenty of people from mainland Portugal and the whole continent besides to these shores. Isabel Clerc was one of them. The former journalist turned ceramicist moved here from Paris. When we met in her workshop on the eastern tip of the island, she explained to me what attracted her to the ancient Portuguese art of azulejos and why she decided to bring this craft to the Azores when she relocated. I moved here from Paris in 2017 because I was working in the industry of journalism and it was quite a big hard life and we were fed up with it and we had a baby and we wanted to see it a little more. And uh, more seriously, we already knew the Azores for traveling a lot here, like since 20 years. And we chose the island of Piku because we already knew it and we needed new life. It's not like the landscapes or the ocean, even if it's just you fell on the floor, how much it's beautiful. It's the people. The people from here, we enjoyed a lot. We had a lot of fun with them. They're our friends. And when we came the, the very first time here in 20 years ago, it's a long story, so I will be short, but I had no keys from the house uh, I rent here. And the man who I was supposed to come with, a friend of mine, didn't come. So I was here alone without speaking any words of Portuguese. I've never been to Azores before, and I was welcomed by the neighbors. Everyone came to see me, said, do you need a bed? Do you want to eat? You need something? I said, okay, that's a nice place. So I would say it's for the people that we are here. And then, of course, for the nature and whatever you have here, which is wonderful. But it was a question of people. The very first time I fell in love with the Azulejos was for my very first trip in Portugal mainland in 1997. What I found interesting was that the Portuguese managed to tell story with such a small square and they put it one to each other and they tell stories and I was saying to them, wow, that's a nice way to tell stories. I have all been drawing so that was interesting to me. And uh, then I decided to make a school to learn it better. I make them here. I make them tide come by boat or I do them by myself. And they are glazed here. I paint on them. And the trouble is when you have uh, oxide uh, pigments, you can't correct yourself. Otherwise, you have to be very creative or uh, to put your ties away. So it's better to be creative. There is no eraser or some stuff like that. The glaze will drink the pigments, always. So when you put the paint on it, which is not a paint, it's a metallic oxide, it's drunk and you have to do with it. I'm painting them here and I'm burning them here in a kiln. As I'm working, it's a very traditional technique. It's only one firing. It's called alto fogo. The very high firing touch is that you, you paint once on the glaze and then you burn it all together just once. You don't need any varnish or whatever. So you put it into the kiln. You wait it to get high till 1000 Celsius degrees. Then you wait like between 10 or 20 minutes and then you wait it to be uh, cold again. And so that's why the tile will stay, whatever his size, like 25 hours into the kiln before you can take it back. Mm -hmm. So it's full of surprise. What will the color be? What is the chemistry into the kiln? Because there's something happening <laughs> inside that you can't even explain. And it's always a surprise, a good surprise. While Clerk constructed her business by importing a craft that didn't exist on the island, for someone like Philippe Rocha, the secret was to revive a tradition that was at risk of extinction. Born on São Miguel, the biggest island in the Azores archipelago, Rocha didn't have to go quite as far for his new venture, but Pico still held a special appeal for him. This island has a great winemaking tradition that, after Phylloxera all but destroyed the vines in the 19th century, had almost been abandoned on the island. 
With his two partners and a lot of dedication, he rebuilt the lava stone walls that protect the plants on this windy island, and today, his vineyard, Azores Wine Company, makes prize bottles that appear in esteemed wine list around the world. From his sleek adega in the middle of the volcanic fields, he explains more of how the idea took root. We're three guys that started the project, and our connection is related, of course, with Azores. So I was born in Miguel Island, not in Pico, where we are. Although my background is economics, I was, since 2004, a director of a hospitality and culinary school. And in 2007, through a chef friend that we have in common, I was introduced to Antonio Massanita, the winemaker and main partner of Azores Wine Company. So at that time, we met because I invited him to come and teach wine and food pairing. And he always wanted to do something in Azores because his father is from San Miguel Island too. So that's why his connection to Azores always spent his summer vacations in San Miguel. In 2010, Antonio did his first wine in Azores, in San Miguel Island, from a test field of Terrantes do Pico. Terrantes do Pico is a unique grape varietal that was almost extinct at the time that Pico was declared World Heritage by UNESCO. That was 2004. So the government made a research on the fields and they found only 89 plants of Terrantes do Pico. So they planted a test field in San Miguel Island to recover that grape. And Antonio did his first wine in Azores from that test field of Terrantes do Pico. So the project was really nice, just a few bottles, about 500 bottles of Terrantes do Pico. And then we did a launch in Lisbon of the wine that was 2011. So it was really nice. So he was interested to come to Pico, which is the main island producing wines nowadays because in the past all the islands used to produce wine, but really Pico is the one that kept this culture because it's so unique. Also because Pico is a young island geologically, meaning that all the other islands have organic soil and they were able to produce other cultures that Pico was not able to. That's why after Phylloxera the vineyards were abandoned and all the other islands started producing something else and Pico didn't. So we got interested a lot on the projects that were running about recovering the abandoned vineyards. So more than 99% of the vineyards were abandoned and there were projects of the government to recover that vineyards. So we started doing a project by the end of 2014, recovering about 30 hectares of vineyards, and then we go on and on, and we ended up recovering 125 hectares, which is basically the area that Pico had in 2004. Since we started, I think it was a revolution in the island. Growing wine in these conditions, on a rocky island with temperamental weather, battering wind and no automatic machinery, is extremely challenging. But a sense of resilience, almost defiance, is a big part of what makes living in the Azores so attractive. Working here is bracing, almost adventurous, always surprising. Isn't that the best you can hope for from a day in the office? From Comfect, in the Azores, I am Chiara Romella. A report there by Comfex Deputy Editor Chiara Romella. Gillian, how do you feel about this sense of freedom that the isolation of island living offers? Do you enjoy it? I love island life. One of my favourite island experiences was on assignment when I got to film at Fogo Island, which is the extreme sort of tip of Canada. It almost feels like a chunk of Ireland has been chipped off and has floated towards Canada. There really is a sense of timelessness there. I felt it was the closest thing to time travel. I just felt I was back in the 50s where, you know, they have postmen and milkmen and it was a very, very special way of life and I could see the appeal of people who really don't want to leave their islands for the big cities because there's a serenity to it and a simplicity with values, very deep-rooted values. So um, I'm a big fan of islands. The island mentality has a sort of pejorative connotation sometimes but actually it can be magical as Chiara found and it depends on what you're incubating if it's some progressive wonderful impulse then (laughs) all the better for being cut off from the world but I occasionally feel slightly panicked I have to confess to my shame in a way when I go to an island (laughs) I feel like it's so far away from the kind of urban world that I'm used to 
Are you talking about grey, damp British islands? Mm. I went to Jura, which is in the Hebrides, and actually stayed in a lovely lodge. It's where George Orwell wrote 1984 and when he was sort of sequestered up there. And it has a real sense of the end mm. of the earth. And there are, you know, dolphins and seals. It's on the Gulf Stream. It was amazing, but there's something in me that occasionally just thinks, God, I'm so far from everything. <laughs> what if something happened? And how do I get to the local shop? It's two hours walk. <laughs> but I do think that remoteness is good for creativity, which is why you find a lot of painters and artists and writers and poets who create some of their best work on islands. Marcella, is island life for you or do you crave the hustle and bustle of your beloved Zurich? I think I'm quite an urban person, but um, I don't know how long, but I could absolutely imagine to live, for example, on an Aeolian island like the small round Stromboli, Filikudi or Olikudi, and a life reduced to the essential things like very basic is the idea of it. It's just beautiful. So I could uh, go tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> or after fact, the fashion weeks <laughs> I think you might need it after the fashion weeks let's be yeah. honest we'll have to cook up an assignment for you in one of those places immediately regular listeners will know by now that here on Confect Corner we love a good unconventional find so it should be no surprise that we've been marvelled by Copenhagen based concept store Holly Lightly. From dainty pearl necklaces by Danish jeweller Sophie Billebraha to terracotta sculptures by Paris-based retailer Krista Saya, the shop's selection is equal parts chic and curious. Now, having grown up alongside Copenhagen's own fashion scene over the past two decades, Holly Golightly has become a go-to spot for the city's best dressed. We dispatch Carol Abbott Galvao to Copenhagen to catch up with Holly Golightly's founder, Barbara Werner, at her shop. Barbara started by explaining how the brand came to be. So the shop began about 19 years ago. I had some partners at that time, two partners, and um, we started in a very small space that is not so far from here, about five minutes from here. And eventually we split it up into two stores. So one had accessories and one had ready-to-wear. A few years after, I split up from my partners at the time, and so it was only me. I got the chance to kind of merge the two shops together and then present a more interesting venue including my art that I have collected over the last 20 years. I was of the impression that I needed to make something that had more to offer visually and uh, as a destination to visit when you come to Copenhagen. It also gave me the chance to feature a rotation of art that has been my passion for the past at least 20 years and so I have slowly collected more and more and therefore had the opportunity to feature it in here as a visual depth to the store and make it more personal and more homey and more like visiting a home in a way. You were talking about kind of starting the store back then and this appreciation of physical spaces and how that's dying down but how you kind of wanted to through the store bring that idea or notion or habit back into people's lives. What was the concept for the store back then? Well, it was very easy to make a concept back then because we had a very, very limited selection of luxury goods in Copenhagen at the time. So there was free choice. We started out with brands like Chloe, Marc Jacobs, uh, Mm -hmm. Mani and Mm -hmm. things like that. And we also made a few things handmade at the time, vintage-based, the same way that we now have a vintage selection and also create our own styles within uh, knitwear, within cotton pieces for summer and cashmere hats, scarves, things like that, that have no season and can get produced and sold whenever we want. But the concept that it started from was to present the Copenhagen clients to the more quirky and whimsical selection of luxury, uh, creative, ready-to-wear. And so now we are more specialized in jewelry also, and we still choose ready-to-wear. But we've catapulted a lot of brands into Copenhagen. Things like Balenciaga, Christian Louboutin, Bottega Veneta. Things that we started with and then in time got their own stores, things like that. So our expertise is to invent something and it also keeps us on our toes to kind of find the new things and the not so mainstream things. 
we are not completely avant-garde. That's not what I'm trying to say, uh, because also that can be a challenge in itself in a smaller town in Scandinavia like mm. ours. But we think we are a bit different. It's a very personal curation I have in the store. And um, we like to present what we really feel is uh, deeply personal to ourselves and that we appreciate a lot. And it can be everything from something very well established to something that nobody knows. And I mean, in some ways it is kind of a smaller town. It's you know, in Scandinavia. But in other ways, especially now, there's this sense or this idea that Copenhagen is kind of almost like a fashion capital or that there is Copenhagen style that's kind of exported everywhere now. I think you're right about that. I think the Copenhagen Fashion Week has played a big part in that yeah. and also the youth culture the way that they present themselves have been very um, distinct in other parts of the world and we work with a lot of these people I mean I have a very young staff and they are the ones that have the finger on the pulse into mm-hmm. the evolving scene of the fashion we transport ourselves through any kind of age and it's more about mm-hmm. personalities do you have sort of any interesting stories about finding brands or makers or garments or if you think back to all the time that your store has kind of been open could be funny could be interesting could be quirky i think i i hit a very good uh, note in the time that i met emily bodie for instance Mm -hmm. because this was at a very early stage of her career so it was very fun to meet her at almost just out of school and she also presented me to someone like Jean Prunes who makes jewelry from New York who's also a part of that scene and it's something that we love very much in here yes so I visited her in New York in her at the time very small one room apartment where she had quilts floor to ceiling and the one-off pieces from that and I transported it home some pieces uh, yeah. by hand and uh, slowly uh, evolved and I did the same with Jean Prunes also I met her and I hand carried some of the jewelry home and these are still very core brands in our store mm. and that things that we appreciate a lot so yes I think it's very inspiring to follow people's success stories that way and their personal um, journey so that's something that we like and Yes, I mean, for jewelry makers, it's always also an adventure in a way. We have um, we have some very strong uh, jewelry players. I mean, also from the Danish part, which makes it a little special to visit our store because we have the best Danish jewelry producers, mm. I think. We have Sophie Bilbois, we have Oydel Hanati, we have um, Nadja Schelbayer, we have Lene Wiebe, who's a big success in America, but that is not so widely represented in Copenhagen. We have a lot of um, interesting jewelry brands, I think, yeah. that actually come from here. I mean, talk about having a good eye and like recognizing that all these people had something from the beginning, honestly. It can be a challenge when you build a jewelry brand up the first year. It's not so... You're not going to sell maybe necessarily a lot of stuff, but it's something so personal that will have to grow on the client. And then they, if they start investing, they also start collecting. They will suddenly have a, a favorite and then they will collect within that uh, universe. Yeah. But carrying jewelry is so, so deeply personal and it's something that everybody finds very connected to themselves. So it's um, it's an interesting journey to be on. Do you have like a specific approach when it comes to finding jewelry designers that you like or finding designers that you like in general and do you have like a specific kind of methodology that you use no it's actually very very intuitive and it also means that you need to react on it also when you react on it you cannot be so slow sometimes uh, it can get too late so if you intuitively feel very um, compelled to invest in something or represent someone then I think you should go ahead and do it and then uh, for the most part it will be a success because you felt it so intuitively and sometimes it won't but that's the name of the game and uh, everything in curation and putting things together the way that we do is a bit of a gamble of course we hope that most of the time it ends well and kind of going back to this idea of a concept would you say that your shop kind of has a philosophy or ethos in any way We are very personality-driven in the sense that we choose the people who work here for their kindness first and personality, and then after that, their skill. So if we have an ethos here is that we, we like to enjoy what we do. It's not something that's going to save the planet. It's not one of the main five jobs in the world. So when we are in the business that is creating pleasure for people, we need to take pleasure in it as well. 
Holliger Lightly's founder, Barbara Werner there. Coming up, we meet London-based rising star Leia Sen, visit the biodynamic wine estate of Franz Wenninger in Austria and limber up for icy dips in the colder months. You're listening to Confect Corner. Next up on today's show, we turn to a rising star in London's music scene, 23-year-old artist Leia Sen. The mellifluous melodies and fresh electronic production of her debut EP, You of Now Part One, caught our attention earlier this year. And as the colder months approach, she's already hunkering down to put the finishing touches to Part Two. Born in Sergi on the outskirts of Paris, Sen has taken a studious approach to her musical career so far. She joined Paige Reynolds in her London garden to talk us through her latest release and to offer some tips on overcoming the perils of writer's block. There was a lot of music in my house, obviously, because of my dad. My dad was, like, producing kind of, like, Caribbean music because he's from Martinique it's kind of mixed sometimes he would also like do R&B stuff and my brothers I think or maybe the one that influenced me the most I was like the younger sister that was just like singing but they were both playing instruments they were playing saxophone and piano and they would listen to from Robert Glasper to Miles Davis to I don't know it just went everywhere we'd have Pharrell Williams we have yeah Anyadi and then there's a lot of jazz, obviously, but a lot of R&B. Love hip-hop. It was weird. I wasn't necessarily listening to a lot of things myself, but I was just kind of absorbing everything like a sponge. I remember once, like, I had been playing for a few months and I was playing in the living room and my brother just came downstairs and he was like, can you not hear what you play? <laughs> can you not hear that when you sing over that chords, it sounds crazy? And I was like, what? Then I just started, like, learning theory a bit more and they were teaching me some basics, especially with theory. We'd go to the piano and they'd show me some stuff and, and I would try and learn that. And then they would give me, like, websites or musicians to study, and then I would do that studying on my own. So it was kind of like a little school at home. But at the same time, they were, like, 20, 23, so they were busy with their own lives. Sometimes in Paris I hear things, and I feel like it's people trying to sound a certain way, like trying to be in a certain style. While in London, I find so many people that are just in their own lane and they sound like no one else and it's so unique and it's, yeah, it's so inspiring. When I moved here, I just kept on meeting people that I thought were so talented and so skilled, but no one knew who they were. And I was like, what? <laughs> like literally every corner, I'd meet someone that was like, producing everything themselves, like composing everything, and it, was, it sounded sick. They could play like five different instruments really well. They could sing. It's like, whoa. When you move to another country, you don't really know people. So it's hard to invite people in your very intimate, personal space, in your world. Like my music is everything to me. Because I don't really have much else here in London. Like, I'm slowly building a life here, but I haven't really been here for long. So I really take my time. I'm afraid I'll regret it doesn't feel right When I find I lose I was, like, learning a song from Alan Hampton. He's a guitarist and bass player and singer. He plays bass a lot for Robert Glasper and these people. And I think I was learning a song from him and I just got this weird pattern and then I started like playing around with it. And then I was like, oh my God, no, this is a love song. What am I doing? But I thought, you know what? I never really write love songs, so I'm just going to stick to it. But it's kind of a love song that's also like 
I don't like myself. I like this, but I don't know if I'm good enough. <laughs> Questioning if you're even like worth that love. And then I was like, oh, should I do something to this song? And then my brother was like, no, keep it that way. I was like, cool, okay, song is done. <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like I'm blue. I made it before all the other songs. I actually put it out in 2020, but just by myself. I was just like, whatever, I'm just putting this on the internet, see who feels it. And then, yeah, people started reaching out. They were like, oh, I love that song. I was like, what? The process of making it was so weird. I was just like playing this complex, weird, like finger picking pattern with the chords. And I, I loved it. I can't remember what it was, but I loved it. And I was like, I'm going to record this and produce it. And then I tried and it was so hard, it just didn't work. And I thought, okay, I need to simplify this. And I just started playing the really simple guitar parts. And I was like, it just kind of hit something emotionally. I was like, cool. And I had this concept in my head of writing a song about myself in the future because all the songs that I was writing, I felt really disconnected to. I felt like this is not mm -hmm. really where I'm at in my life. So I feel like Ambu, I was like, cool, we need to connect with the vision. Like, where do you see yourself realistically as well? Like, I didn't want to just be like, oh, I see myself in a big mansion with tons of money and everything's great. I was like, I'm probably going to be sad. I don't know why, but I'm going to be sad. Like, I'm going to do things better. I'm going to love better and I'm going to connect with people with more maturity and stuff. But... I also had to recognise that I'm not going to be good every day. I've been like developing more and more techniques. The number one is don't think. Sometimes it's just I stand up and I just walk around and I try to not think. I just try to like, I don't know. <laughs> For example, earlier I was writing a song and I just started thinking about, oh, but like what about this melody is it gonna feel this way and it never works you can't think a song you can't think it in a way that's gonna hit people emotionally because if you want people to connect emotionally you need to connect emotionally and emotions are not yeah you can't I don't know yeah so that's a dumb technique but I'm just just don't fucking think about making it. Just think about anything. You can't stop thinking, but don't think about actually making the thing. Just sing whatever. So definitely like standing up and like not looking at the door and just singing around. And I mean, it sounds stupid, but for so long, I was just staring at my door, like trying to make a melody and thinking, how can I make the best melody? And just being so rational about it that nothing was really coming out. I've been spending so much time on Pinterest. Now I just make Pinterest while I'm making the songs. And I'm just going through the Pinterest and I'm just singing whatever I see. Which is really like fun because it's kind of an exercise. Do I even know how to say this thing or how do I describe this or how do I connect to this? Definitely also tons of reading. I've been reading a lot more the past year. And I love to have a book next to me and just open the book and just sing the words that I see. I don't know because it's like you can just open a random page and then you see an expression and maybe it has nothing to do with what you're talking about but you can just put it in your own context and it really works sometimes i'm like there's nothing in my brain i mean generally i make music and then my brain is empty and i just look at the song and i'm like how am i supposed to write something so you need sometimes to get inspired externally mm. like often even obviously conversations with friends having a call I was going to say, start an argument with your friend and then write about The Revenge album's coming. The Revenge album, yeah, man. Got many songs. <laughs> many, many songs. Musician Leia Sen there in conversation with Paige Reynolds. Sophie, as editor of Confet, what tips can you give us? How do you overcome Rachel's block? I have a swim sometimes, and that's a very predictable answer. I once wrote an essay whilst cooking, and it was really, it really was quite good. I was like stirring and then just tapping some little kind of thoughts down, and when I looked around, I'd written a thousand words, and it was actually all right. 
But it's quite, I think you really need to sometimes just wrestle the beast with writing, you know, confront the writer's block head on rather than dashing out for a jog. Martella, is there anything you do in particular when you need inspiration? Yeah, actually, the best is to bring movement into your head. It's also actually to move your body. And for me, a walk or a run is actually the best. Very simple, but it's working. A nice stroll <laughs> <laughs> to freshen the mind. I'm not a natural writer. I wish I was, but I can imagine music and rhythm being actually a very good way to spark off words. I use pictures. Because I'm a filmmaker, I just find I have to look at all the film footage and I organize the film footage in my head. Then I have my laptop, and once I've seen the footage, then I'm inspired by the pictures and I can start writing the script. But I couldn't do it if I hadn't seen the footage that we've shot. I'd find it really hard. It's really fun how she also talks about just opening a random book on the side and just reading, and that sometimes just becomes a lyric. It's just that sense of creativity that is also chance and that is also just to do with kind of happenstance, which I find really refreshing. Now, for the new autumn issue of Confect magazine, our contributor Alexei Korolev visited the biodynamic wine estate of Franz Veninger in Burgenland, one of Austria's biggest wine-producing regions. Veninger also has vineyards across the border in Hungary, so his output includes wines made from both Austrian and Hungarian varieties such as the Blaufränkisch and the Formint. Here, Veninger tells Alexei about his business. Yeah, the Middle Burgenland is kind of elevated, so uh, the church is here on 230 meter, and we are going up to 360 meter. But we are open to the Pannonian side, so the climate, Pannonian climate. Burgenland is perhaps the most un-Austrian of all Austrian provinces, all open spaces and no mountains. For Franz Wenninger, that is what makes it so special. How more you go to the open land, your mind gets open. How more you are in valleys. Your mind is closed. Look at the natural wine scene. 90% of the natural wine scene is in Burgenland. The Wenninger winery began life in 1986 in the most inauspicious of circumstances. A year before, government scientists had found that some Austrian winemakers were adding antifreeze to their wines, at least two of them in Burgenland. Austria's reputation was shattered. But then Wenninger's father, also named Franz, turned disaster into opportunity but this was the best thing for Austria. People were looking for real wines, wines with structure, wines with backbone, and not these made-up, faked wines. And so he could grow very fast. Soon, all of Burgenland was back on its feet, but the Wenningers didn't want to follow a lucrative new trend that emerged in the wake of the scandal. After the wine scandal, this area was the big red wine region. Why? After the wine scandal, the wine was sweet. Mm. And so the region reacted to it to make the wines different than they are. So they bought concentration machines to make the wine sweeter. They used scumia arabicum to make the wine sweeter. They deacify the wine to make it more drinkable for the average customer. So basically they make music which is played on on commercial radio stations. And, and now in Austria, this region is uh, considered as the most commercial wine region. It's not true from our gifts. We, we are not. We have backbone, we are colder, we are totally opposite. It's just that most of the producers went this way and I'm, we were the, were the only one who'd come back. And now we have Stefan Velanjitz, and now we have Luca Teichmann. He was working here and he started his own winery. So slowly, maybe we're getting a kind of new community who defines the area again. Mm. But it's a long way. Wenninger insists that his wines are natural wines, although this term has no clear definition. Some natural wine producers don't use any additives at all, while others, including Wenninger, add sulfur. I like wines without sulfur, but there are certain flaws in wine which I don't like. And uh, I always say it's like brushing your teeth with water or brushing your teeth with a toothpaste, or showering with water or showering with, uh, with, so. with a soap. And we know that the body can react if you only wash yourself with water, uh, you will sweat less and it will work. But 
maybe not all the time when you have stress and so on. I, I think most importantly, wine has to be character. And if the character is big enough, it doesn't matter how the person looks like. For Weninger, the naturalness of his wines, and indeed his entire business, is more about character. His biggest dream is to go back to the kind of sustainable simplicity that was the hallmark of his grandparents' generation. My, my grandmother and my grandfather, Rosa, she was making her own butter because everything which she didn't have to buy in the shop, she didn't need money, so it was yeah. cheaper. So sustainability was also financially better. Mm. And I think with the specification, this got a problem. Since it's cheaper, you buy your butter in the shop than make your own butter, then it's like a lifestyle to make your own butter. It's a lifestyle to make your own bread. Yeah. It's also okay, but I think if politics can't manage that, that this also gets financially interesting for not so rich people. I'm not sure if we can save the planet. For Confect Corner, I'm Alexey Korolev. And now for this episode's final thought, we turn to Confet contributing editor Kimberly Bradley, who, as a freshwater swimmer, has been contemplating joining the regulars who bathe all year round in Berlin's Schlachtensee. For the past two years, I've lived just a few steps from Schlachtensee, a small clear lake with the shoreline ringed by trees in southwestern Berlin. Having grown up in Minnesota, the Midwestern state's name roughly means land of sky blue waters in Dakota, and spent my early life always close to a body of fresh water. Living near a lake again is a homecoming of sorts, and I'm finding that old habits are returning. In summer, first thing on weekday mornings, I join the neighborhood's older folks who shovel down the street to the lake in Adidas slip-ons and natty bathrobes and nothing else to bathe on naturel before the hordes come from elsewhere, filling the lake with oversized blow-up boats, flamingo floaties, and loud laughter. On hot afternoons, wearied from home office desk work, I take half-hour swim breaks to reset my brain. Every once in a while, I might dip in at sunset with a friend, doing breaststroke and chatting while people on stand-up paddle boards or our two grumpy resident swans glide by. Come autumn, as the trees turn from jungly green to swaths of red, yellow, and orange, and the water feels more biting than inviting, the crowds thin back down to the area's stalwarts, and a few triathletes traverse the lake the long way, their orange, insulated packs bobbing like movable buoys. That's when I have to start assessing my own limits. Can I keep up with some of my neighbors who manage to keep going on their morning swims until deep into the winter? Or should I take inspiration from Canadian author Jessica J. Lee, who, in the wake of a rocky breakup, assigned herself the task of plunging into a different Berlin-area lake every week for a year, even hacking through ice with a hammer in the winter months. Her adventures in pushing herself past recurring fears, along with delicious descriptions of Berlin's geography and ecology and musings on how bodies of fresh water operate, were published in the 2017 memoir Turning, Lessons from Swimming Berlin's Lakes. The turning refers to how lake water moves and churns, constantly refreshing itself. Through all four seasons, she swims in lakes big and small, urban and rural, but for her, winter swimming is the most rewarding. I long for the ice, she writes. The sharp cut of freezing water on my feet, the immeasurable black of the lake at its coldest. Swimming then means cold and pain and elation. Even if at age 10 I was the first kid to swim in northern Minnesota's Lake Bemidji before the ice on it had melted, back home there was an annual friend group polar bear contest, and one year I won. I already know that I won't be breaking ice on Schlachtensee. But this year I'm aiming to swim colder than I could during the pandemic's heyday. I'm already practicing the Dutch motivational Iceman Wim Hof's breathing techniques to better access the rush of endorphins and immune system boosting that his cold therapy promises. I'm even working on plunging and no longer timidly easing into my lake's now familiar waters. The no pain, no gain elation can then come faster and hopefully spill over onto other parts of life. 
I can't wait. That was Convex contributing editor Kimberly Bradley. Marcella, have you been limbering up for those icy dips I know you love so much? You're completely right. I love cold waters. For me, it's like a triple espresso, but much, much better. You feel so incredibly awake. I love this. I love that description. That's just a kind of, you know, the senses, the whole body trembling <laughs> with cold. <laughs> Fills me with horror. What better way to wake up? I love Kimberly's description of all her neighbours walking down in their dressing gowns with nothing else underneath, just through the neighbourhood, <laughs> flocking. But she is obviously incredible. She used to be quite serious cold water swimming back in um, Minnesota. Mm. So I think she um, obviously should revive some of her talents. That's a very icy <laughs> lake. Gillian, <laughs> um, will we find you dipping this winter in any freezing cold water? You know me, Sophie. No, 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 no. I like uh, salt water and really it's the colour I like so much. So I need turquoise water. I need that gorgeous Mediterranean turquoise bays. And then what I love about the Med is the salt of the ocean. It just makes you float in such a wonderful way. So no, 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 no. No, no freshwater icy cold swims for me. I'm summer Med girl. So maybe we could tempt you into a kind of off-season Mallorca dip. Maybe a Christmas Day splash. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> this is the, the kind of mission on Confect Corner by the end of the season to see Gillian, you know, marching into the sea on New Year's uh, Day. But I've been with you on mountain glaciers in Samarit, Sophie, and I do know you're like a cold dip. I do. I love marking the occasion with the very memorable dip. You never forget it. And I think we, we swam in an amazing glacial lake. And it was the same thing, all the delegates from a little conference we did at Monocle, marching with their amazing white fluffy dressing gowns from Savretta House into this muddy-looking lake. But no one ever forgot it. And they also felt, I think, energised and invigorated too. So Martel is right. Well, that's all we have time for on this episode of Confet Corner. My thanks to Gillian DeBias here in London and Marcella Palak in Zurich for keeping me company once more. The new autumn issue of Confect magazine is out now. Find us in all good newsstands or get your copy delivered straight to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and edited by Christy O'Grady. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listening.